Well, we've finally come to the last week. Um, thank you for all of you who've been doing this journey for the last seven weeks or so. Uh, for those just joining, we've been looking at the story of Paul's life, uh, for tracing his life through the book of Acts and using that in parallel with his letters, trying to situate the, the letters that Paul wrote um, with his biography that we find in the book of Acts. And so really to ask the question or to answer the question then of why he wrote the letters in the first place. Um, as with everything Paul wrote, there's a story behind it. Um, he, he was writing always in response to issues that were going on in his churches. In fact, if he didn't have any issues in the churches, then there wouldn't be any letters. So it's probably good that his churches had their faults, that they were sinful humans like we are still. Um, and so because of that, Paul was able to write to them or he needed to write to them. And so we have some um, some records, some um, uh, just something to sort of draw from uh, as to what was going on in his communities. So we've been following that story, um, but we're at the final week now. Um, last week we got up to Paul. Well, when we found Paul last week, he was arrested in Jerusalem. Um, he had just been uh, nearly killed by a, a violent mob who had, um, well, mo most of them didn't even know why they were there. Um, they just saw that there was some fun happening, so they've all joined in. But ultimately what it came down to was that for a long time, Paul had made himself public enemy number one back in Jerusalem, certainly amongst the more orthodox Jewish folks, which is most of Jerusalem. Um, but he had uh, he had certainly made plenty of enemies back there. And what he would had been arrested on, uh, arrested for in Jerusalem, was some false charges. Basically, um, the the rumors had been spreading around that he has been out in the world telling everybody to all, the, particularly tell the Jews to turn away from Moses, to not circumcise their kids, to not observe all of the Jewish customs. Um, basically, that he had the the rumor had been that he has been undermining Judaism throughout. The, the Jewish world. Now, in part, it's true that he has in, well, as far as they were concerned, he had been undermining Judaism in that he had been bringing people over to this Christian faith, um, which as far as they were concerned was, um, was, was a heresy, that Paul was an apostate, that he had left behind Judaism, that he started this new false religion. Um, and so in a sense, that was true, but what they were really focusing on was that Paul was, um, you know, intentionally um, trying to uh, undermine Moses and to try to uh, turn people away from him, which is just simply not the case. I mean, Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles and some Jewish followers had come along the way. Um, but certainly Paul never saw himself as undermining Judaism. Paul saw himself the total opposite. He saw himself as fulfilling Judaism. Um, he always saw himself as a Jew. Um, he was very proud of his Jewish heritage, and what he saw in Christ was the completion. It was the fulfillment of what his Jewish faith had been moving towards this whole time. Um, and so Paul would have understood himself as the, the fullness of being Jewish and the fullness of Judaism. Um, but nevertheless, uh, rumors are what they are, and that had become the basis for Paul's arrest by this mob. And so they have uh, the, the Romans, the, the Roman uh, garrison that was stationed in Jerusalem to for exactly this purpose, um, there was an entire Roman garrison, maybe of a thousand soldiers, always positioned in Rome, right next to the temple, in, where naturally these events were going to take place. And so they were ready for all of this. And so this um, Roman, uh, well, he wasn't the governor. He was um, uh, uh, basically, he was just the head of the guard on behalf of the on behalf of the governor in Jerusalem. So a guy by the name of Claudius Lysias, he has come and arrested Paul and just trying to figure out what's going on. Paul's got up and um, you know the first assumption that Claudius had was that Paul was some Egyptian um, troublemaker that had come back who a few years ago had uh, led astray a band of people who were going to overthrow the Romans. And well, that was quickly put down by Felix, who was the governor. Um, so Paul, and then 
Claudius had thought, well, he must be the same guy returning a couple of years later. And um, obviously that's not the case. And so he's quickly figured it out. And then Paul's gone to address the Jewish crowd. And so Claudius has thought, yeah, great, address them. Let me figure out what's going on. But then Paul spoke in Aramaic. And so Claudius couldn't understand what was being said by him. All he knew was where the story got up to was that when Paul had finished speaking, the crowd went crazy. They just wanted Paul dead 50 ways from Sunday and he still had no idea what was going on. And so he's getting pretty desperate at this stage. He wants to be able to demonstrate to the governor that he's a competent um, authority in Jerusalem, that he can take care of matters himself. But at the same time, the situation is clearly getting out of hand. Now, at this point, he still doesn't realize at all, he has no idea who Paul is. He, he's learnt very quickly that Paul's a Greek speaker from Tarsus as opposed to some um, who knows what speaking uh, troublemaker from Egypt, but that the crowd absolutely hates him, but he can't figure out why. Um, anyway, so he's got no idea what's going on. So he's trying to deal with this situation because if it does get out of hand and Jerusalem goes crazy, which it already kind of has, then that just looks bad on him. He's the one who ultimately has to give an account of that back to the governor. And that's not something he wants to have to do because, uh, well, that could end any number of terrible ways for him. So he's just he just needs to deal with this somehow and to deal with this in the most appropriate way. And if it does have to go to the governor, which is what he doesn't want to have to have to do, but if it does have to go there, he needs to make sure that he's done everything in his power to try to deal with matters and that if it has to go to the governor, that has to be for good reasons. Um, you don't want to be sending – it's just like you don't want to be sending your manager every tiny little issue that's going on because you just kind of look incompetent. Um, you don't want to be that person. So you want to be able to demonstrate that you can deal with this. So anyway, that's where we find ourselves in the story. And so for our final episode now of this journey through the book of Acts and through Paul's letters, we're going to see how we go from this initial arrest to Paul's imprisonment in Rome two years later on. So join me for this. So we'll pick up our story where we left off last week in Acts 22. Um, so the story, as the story goes, the crowd listened to Paul until he had said this. So Paul had just given his testimony and everyone had been listening quite enraptured until Paul says that God had sent him to the Gentiles. And that had just triggered the, the, the entire crowd. And of course, remembering that Lysias couldn't understand what Paul was saying because he was speaking in Aramaic. And two, ironically, the accusers who were, the Jewish accusers who were from Ephesus, wouldn't have been able to understand him either because they would have been just typical Greek-speaking um, Ephesian citizens. So even they didn't know what was going on. The only people that did was the crowd, and, well, this is what happened. So the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, "'Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live.'" And as they were sh shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. I love the way that Luke is just so nonchalant that he directed that he be flogged and interrogated. Um, notice that it's not interrogated and then flogged as though being interrogated has discovered that he's done something wrong. Therefore he should be flogged as a punishment. It's the other way around. And this is standard, the standard way that Romans deal with their slaves and certainly how they deal with non-citizens. Now, this is a key difference that we recognize. We know that Paul was a Roman citizen and that brought with it certain um, privileges, certain benefits, one of those being that you don't get treated like a non-citizen. So remembering at this stage that Paul, um, th as far as they're concerned, Paul, that Paul is not, a, at the very least, we assume he's not a citizen. And there's nothing about him that has indicated that. And at the time, see, what, what normally would have happened was that when Paul was arrested, um, he was brought before Lysias, the very first words out of Paul's mouth would have been, I am a Roman citizen. Um, civis Romanus sum, I am a Roman citizen. That would have put an end to the proceedings. It automatically would have put Claudius on Paul's side and put um, and positioned Paul against the crowd. Uh, so he would have automatically gained protection from that Roman garrison 
that he had been brought to. But at the same time, it would have put Paul offside with his potential audience. He wanted to address this Jewish crowd. And if he has just given himself over to the Romans and said, I'm one of you guys, there's no way on earth that they would have listened to him. That just never would have happened. And so Paul has held back on that particular piece of information. Um, it's not going to serve his purposes just yet. Um, he knows that that's the ace up his sleeve and he knows he's going to use it eventually. But for the moment, he's held back because he wants to make sure that he has that opportunity to speak to the crowds. So what that's also meant, however, is that Claudius has no idea that Paul is a Roman citizen. And so what is a standard procedure for a non-citizen and particularly for a slave is that when you interrogate them it has to be done by flogging especially this is especially true for a slave in fact uh, i mean a slave could come up and give uh, absolute 100 percent credible eyewitness testimony about something that has happened and that's all fine but it's of no consequence unless it's been brought out by interrogation so even if they've come and voluntarily confessed the information they still have to be tortured or flogged or both <laughs> for it to be valid testimony you know that sounds in completely backwards and you're right it absolutely is this is this is a, a an empire that governed by crucifixions um, I mean, this is why Jesus came. This is why he came into this empire to say, guys, stop, you are going to hell in a handbasket. This is why you need to get saved. So this is a very, um, this is, this is the, the standard sort of behavior that we're going to expect. And so that's just the default thing that he's going to do. He thinks he's about to do to Paul. Um, so all very normal. This is all kind of how we would expect things to be, to be dealt with. But then and I love this part of the story. This is probably one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it just shows how clever Paul is. It just He's just so canny when it comes to this stuff. I mean, he the thing about Claudius Lysias is that he's trying to get this situation under control. He's got to be the man in charge. That's why he's, he's put there because if he, if he doesn't, if he demonstrates that he's not in control to his superiors, they're going to remove him. They're going to send him back to Rome. He's going to be dishonorably discharged. I mean, it's going to be a terrible outcome for him. At the very least, he is the authority. He needs to be the one who's in control of the situation. And he he, he probably at this stage starts to feel like he is. Um, you know, he's been managed to somewhat calm the crowd initially. Um, he's, he's got Paul in custody. And although he doesn't quite know what's going on, he still has all of, he still has his, his um, barracks behind him to bring Paul to. Um, he's still in charge of the situation, or at least so he thinks to some extent. So he's brought Paul back inside with this intention of finding out what is going on once for all so that he can make the best decision to deal with the circumstances. What he just he just doesn't realize the sort of person that he's dealing with in Paul. Now, very quickly, his position has gone from he's just some renegade Egyptian Jew who's, who's who was a troublemaker to all right, he's he's more sophisticated than I thought. He speaks Greek, he speaks Aramaic. Um, you know, the people seem to listen to him, then they seem to hate him. Like there's something else about this guy, but doesn't just quite realize how. Uh, in control of the situation Paul actually is. So just to break this story down, Acts, Acts 22, 25. So as they stretched him out to flog him, that wasn't... Okay, so you need to picture a large, solid wooden post in the middle of the room, and on top of that post are a couple of chains with effectively handcuffs to bind, to bind Paul's wrists to this post. So that's the flogging post. So they stretched him out. What does that mean? Well, first of all, they took his clothes off. They stripped him down naked. Now, again, they are under the assumption that this is just a standard, you know, a non-citizen or a slave. It is completely illegal to torture a Roman citizen. Now, so much so that if at the worst extreme of punishment, execution, um, if you're a citizen you are you can at the best be beheaded um that's it, it's a quick it's a dignified death if you're a non-citizen you get crucified um if you are a citizen it is completely illegal to punish you without proper trial you cannot touch a roman citizen unless they have been properly charged properly um, um accused or are properly found guilty 
Only then can you give them a punishment and it is only ever the minimal amount of punishment that is necessary for a Roman citizen. So this is why when Paul was in Philippi, he was, well, he, he was punished. And now actually, we'll come back to that story actually, because that's going to be an important context to, to give to this one. But they stretched him out to flog him. He's completely naked. And well, that's what they're about to do. They're about, they're about to flog him. Now, Paul, Paul is just waiting for the ideal moment for the big reveal. The big reveal is coming. He's got that under control. He's got that ace up his sleeve. Um, but he's just waiting for the most incriminating possible moment, but at the moment before he gets um, unnecessarily tortured. Now, I just said a moment ago about Philippi. When, when Paul was in Philippi, when he was arrested out in the forum and he was flogged, what he would have been flogged with was um, the, the, um, the rods, the, the, this um, bundle of rods that were carried by the lictor. So you've got the magistrate of the city and you've got his guards that are there with him that are there to inflict punishment. And what they carry with them is this fascias, where we get a word fascism from. So this is a bundle of rods with an axe in the middle, which is the two punishments that Roman give, Romans give you. It's a flogging for a minor crime and it's death for a more serious crime. That's there, There's only one of two extremes of, of punishment that you're going to experience. So when Paul got flogged there, he was flogged with, a, um, with the rods. Now he talks about this actually later on. He says, three times I was beaten by rods with... Uh, um, by the Romans, beaten with these rods. And he tells that to the Corinthians. Um, now, in that particular circumstance, Paul did the same thing again. He went through the punishment, but then later on, after the, the next day, he revealed that he's a Roman citizen, which is what got him out of the prison in the first place. He had to go through that punishment, or he, he chose to go through that punishment because it enabled him to align himself with the lower status Philippian Christians who wouldn't have had the luxury of being able to get themselves out of that punishment. So he he went through it because, I mean, to be beaten by rods must be absolutely, it literally is a torture. I mean, it would have been an absolute excruciating experience to go through, but you're going to survive it. That's that's the point. You're, it's going to be terrible and it's going to hurt for weeks and you're going to get some terrible scarring, but you're going to get through it, right? That That's not designed to kill you. That's designed to punish you on the spot, to make it very clear to you, never do this again, um, and then go on your way. So he knew he was going to survive that. So he went through that, and it was only the next day that he revealed his citizenship, which which could have got him out of it in the first place. He should never have gone through that, and they, the Romans knew that, which is why they panicked when they found out that he was a citizen. But he, he waited till the next day, and what that did was give him – um, effectively, it gave him the power over those Romans um, when they turned around and said, "We have done, we've done something very stupid here," and they wanted to get Paul out of town as quickly as possible. So that enabled him to get out of Philippi and to move on. So that's the same card that he's got to play here. Now the, the circumstances have changed a little bit because five minutes ago, when he was standing in front of the Jewish crowd, it wasn't to his benefit at that point to reveal his citizenship, but. The difference this time is that the sort of flogging he's about to go through is going to be with a cat of nine tails. Now, you would have heard of this type of whip before, nine uh, cords of leather, and it would have been bound up. Well, there probably would have been uh, lead balls on the end of the whip just to give it extra weight and give it to extra, give it extra impact. Um, and then as on top of that, it would have been, the cords would have been bound up with um, bits of metal, bits of bone, um, just anything sharp and jagged that when it hits you, not only is the lead going to deepen the impact of the whip, but naturally all those bits of sharp material are going to just shred the skin off your back. Now, these punishments are naturally horrific, just horrific. In fact, this is, the, this is what you would normally go through before you get crucified. So we see Jesus go through the same thing. He was flogged and then he was crucified. These, this particular punishment was so bad that even the Romans acknowledged that when they did charge somebody and um, sentence them to crucifixion, quite often they never got to the crucifixion because the flogging itself killed them. The flogging, there's so much blood loss and just so much devastation that has been caused because there's no qualms. I mean, the Jews would say, we'll give you the 40 lashes minus one, so 39 at the absolute most, but ideally we'll give you less than that. The Romans are like, we're just going to flog you until our arms are tired, till there's nothing left to flog. 
And so this is very often going to be your cause of death. So this is what Paul's about to face. So this is an entirely different circumstance to Philippi. And Paul knows that, well, you know, he could have handled the one in Philippi, but there's no way that he's going to put himself through this. And certainly unnecessarily, he's done what he needs to do. He's, he's, he's tried to address the crowd. That hasn't worked. There's nothing else to be achieved now with this Jewish audience because they they just want to kill him. So, well, he could go outside and be killed, or he could stay inside here with his Romans and be killed. But at least if he plays his cards right, literally, well, he's has a chance to have these Romans not only protect him, but probably get him out of the city, which is really what needs to happen next. So as they, as they stretch out to flog him, so again, Paul is naked. He's chained to this post without any trial. All right, everything about this is as bad as it possibly can get for these Romans. Paul says to the, the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Now, I don't know what emotion Paul put into that. I don't know if there was just a bit of desperation in his voice, like, please don't do this. I don't think there was. I think Paul was very calm. I think he was, um, you know, probably there was a bit of speed in his voice because the guy, I mean, he would have waited till this guy had his arm raised ready to bring down the first the first hit. But turning to this guy just saying, are you sure this is, a, this is legal to do this to a Roman citizen? And he just, I... <laughs> I, I just I would love to just see this scene just to see the complete change in dynamics in the room, the way that the the faces of these guards would have turned white with fear of realizing the circumstances that they found themselves in. This is absolutely just this is their worst nightmare. Um, just just an absolutely brilliant situation. But in that second, there's Paul. I mean, yeah, Paul naked, chained to a post, about to be flogged, and yet he is the one who now has absolutely all the power in the situation. He is in complete control of everything that is about to happen from now on, which is exactly what Paul knew what was going to happen. He was just he he was strategizing towards this the whole time that he was there, and so now he's in a position where, though chained up and naked, he still has complete control over this particular circumstance. So anyway, the story goes on. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Now I've actually missed a, uh, a small part of this story. In fact, I must have just taken it out of my notes. What's so funny about this, what, what happens next, is that they call over Claudius Lysias and they say, um, and, and so he comes up and he, he's panicked, of course, because he knows that if he, go, if he had gone through with this and then it had been revealed later that Paul was a citizen, that would be his death sentence. So he, he has just, I mean, he's dodged a bullet of, uh, in, in the more almost literal circumstance. He, he, this is, would have been an absolutely terrible outcome for him. So he comes over to Paul and like, are you, are you really a citizen? And, and Paul says, yeah, yeah. And he says, well, um, you know, Claudius system, I paid a high price for my citizenship. And Paul says, I was born a citizen. And this, I mean, it's just such a great, twi- again, an, an additional twist to the story in that um, they, so Claudius has bought his citizenship. Basically he's bribed, bribed his way into citizenship, which did get done, even though it was illegal. It was something that everybody knew was happening. So he he's literally just bribed his way. So he would have been probably a Greek, um, just a sort of a native Greek person, and so probably now under so under the reign of the Emperor Claudius, which is where he would have taken his name from, and so he has, for however through whatever circumstances, bought his citizenship from the local Roman magistrate in his district. So that's how he would have come about um, this particular benefit. So that's been great for him because it's meant that he could join the Roman army and he's been able to rise through the ranks and he's come to where he is now. Um, but nevertheless, he's always going to be uh, have effectively the stigma of having had to bribe his way. To, he didn't earn it. He didn't do anything good. He just paid a lot of money for it. And then Paul turns around and he says, oh, well, I was born a citizen. Now, in the scale of citizenship, just because, you know, not all citizens are created equal. 
you've got at the bottom of the pile people that have bribed their way to it and then at the very top of the pile you've got people that were born citizens see a lot of whenever a slave in the roman world was set free they would earn their citizenship they would gain it by having been emancipated from their slavery so a lot of roman citizens were made out of ex-slaves now they have earned their citizenship but they're still freedmen they're still um, low status in that they used to be slaves the highest type of person you can be in this world is somebody who's free born we're actually going to talk about this next week so not only is paul free born he's free born as a roman citizen and that's the that's the same description you give to the emperor this is the absolute top top of the pile sort of sort of roman citizen so in this particular dialogue not only has paul now completely reversed the situation by revealing that he's a citizen he's actually inverted the whole situation by pointing out that i'm an even better citizen than you are yes you might be a roman officer but i'm of greater status than you as a citizen because i'm a free-born person who is also a citizen so he is not just in control of the situation now he has the superior position in this room paul is in complete control here and that is going to be to his benefit now for the rest of this story okay so let's return to where we were just a moment ago so the commander wanted to find out exactly why paul was being accused by the jews now he's getting obviously incredibly frustrated by this stage not knowing still i mean he not only is paul nothing of what he thought he was He's realized that now he's a citizen. Actually, it's his obligation to defend Paul, to, to get him off these charges. I mean, he's gone from just acquiescing to whatever the Jews wanted to be to now protect him from those same Jews. And all of this within the space of an hour to then going, okay, but the Jews want to kill him. So he must have done something wrong, but I don't know what he did wrong because I can't speak Aramaic, but he's a Roman citizen of the highest possible status. I don't know what on earth to do with this situation. This is just absolutely getting more and more out of hand because as well, if he doesn't do something about it or if he's not at least seen to be doing something about it, then he's going to have an entire Jewish mob who want him dead because he didn't, he's not protecting them from, from Paul. He's so it just, what do you do? I mean, on the other hand, if he does act and does punish Paul, then Paul might have a whole lot of followers in the city that might turn on him as well. So again, he just doesn't know what on earth to do with this situation. So he says, so the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So the Sanhedrin being the um, the Jewish authorities within the city. I mean, that's the next logical place you're going to go. You're going to put Paul on trial, but you're not going to put him on a Roman trial because what's that's not going to do anything because they're not. He's done nothing as far as uh, Lysias can see. He's done nothing to offend the Romans. He, this is a high-standing Roman citizen. He's he he's deserves their protection, not their punishment. So if he is going to punish him, he's got to figure out what on earth is, is going on. So, well, bring him to the people in charge of those rioting mob out there and, and see if they can figure it out. So anyway, Paul, um, you know, stands up in front of this, uh, this Sanhedrin in order to give his defense. And again, it's just Paul in total control of the situation. He's just, he, he's just, he's playing 3D chess here with, with all of this crowd. Now it doesn't, it may not work out to his favor in the end, but you can see he, he just, he, he's just thinking ahead of, of every possible outcome. So he says, then Paul, knowing that some were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Now, I love, again, it's just another one of those brilliant scenes where it just Paul the puppet master in the middle of all of this. He knows that there's Pharisees and there's Sadducees in the room because they make up um, the sum total of the Sanhedrin. And he knows that they've got very different beliefs. I mean, he was, a, he was and still is a Pharisee. He's been trained as a Pharisee. He knows exactly how those guys think. And so he knows that he, he knows how to get them on side because he is one of them. He, you know, he's always been one of them. And so he can still play that card. He's still part of that team as well. Um, and so he can very easily get them on side and also turn that room against each other because they have some very fundamental uh, or they have some um, disagreements about fundamental beliefs like the resurrection, the existence of angels, like core things to the Jewish faith, they have disagreements about. And so look at, look at his response. He says, my brothers, you know, I mean, first of all, I'm a Jew. 
right? I'm an ethnic Jew. I'm a son of Abraham as much as you guys are. Circumcised on the eighth day, all of these things. I am as Jewish as you guys are. He says, I am a Pharisee. Notice he doesn't say I'm a Christian, right? He's not talking about his Christian faith. That's only going to get him killed by everybody in the room. Everyone is going to unite around that point and do everything they can to kill him on the spot. So he doesn't, doesn't mention that at all. In fact, he hasn't mentioned that really, in, uh, except for maybe a bit about his testimony, but he says, I'm a Pharisee. So I'm one of you guys. So half that room is now on his side and descended from Pharisees. I mean, I'm a, I've got heritage in this thing. So half that room is absolutely going, he's our guy. We recognize straight away. So he's going to play that card as much as he can. But then he says, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, again, as we know that the the, the Pharisees um, certainly believe in the resurrection. Their whole hope is for the resurrection. And this is what Paul was trying to bring about by killing the Christians in the first place. The Sadducees, on the other hand, completely disagree. They, they don't believe in the resurrection. So he knows that he can divide the room up that way. But there's also another thing that Paul is doing here. Now, the whole situation so far has been about this riot where they've, they're accusing Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple. Now, notice that we haven't heard about that since then, right? That's, that's a pretty serious accusation. That accusation of bringing Jews into the temple is one that brings about a death sentence. And that one can get you dead very quickly. And even the Romans can't stop that circumstance. So that's actually what Paul should be defending himself against, against the charges of the mob. Notice he doesn't even mention that. Not, one, I'm not a Christian. doesn't mention his Christianity. Number two, doesn't mention anything about what the charges actually are. Rather, he sides with half the room so that those guys who should be accusing him are actually now on his team or he's on their team. And he brings it back to something that's going to divide the room up, but also something that has nothing to do with the situation. I mean, what does the resurrection have to do with any of this? Well, nothing. Now, ultimately, yes, they, it's his belief in Christ being resurrected that um, everybody hates him because he's a Christian, but he's not talking about that here. He's, talking, he's just saying, I just have a belief in the resurrection of the dead. And all the Pharisees in the room go, well, so do we. What's the problem? There's nothing wrong here. And so they start to argue amongst themselves. So he's just turned the room against itself. And they're not even worried about Paul anymore because they're worried about their own theological disputes and completely ignore what the problem is that's standing right in front of them. So total control over the whole situation. But anyway, so it goes on, there was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. They're arguing now put for him. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. I mean, just brilliant. Now, Lysias, again, still has no idea what is actually happening. And in fact, now he's just heard two completely different stories. So he's obligated to protect Paul against the Jewish people because he's a Roman citizen. Um, but he still needs those Jewish people to try to find out what's actually going on with Paul. Now he's, well, he doesn't really necessarily know what's going on. He's, you know, the mob said one thing and said another thing. And now, um, you know, if Paul did this in Aramaic, which I assume he did. He still doesn't know what's going on because all he's seen is that last time Paul spoke in Aramaic, an angry mob tried to kill him. And then now Paul's speaking in Aramaic and they, the, the angry crowd wants to kill each other. And looking at it going, well, they're probably going to turn on him in a moment. So we've got to get in the hell out of here. But I still don't know what's going on. Um, but what's even more brilliant about it is that the actual people who can bring proper charges against Paul, the ones who've actually got some pull with the Roman authorities, are, is the Sanhedrin. And Paul hasn't even mentioned what the crowds talked about, which is uh, that he brought the Jews into the, to the Gentiles into the temple. What he's done is that he's turned it into a theological dispute. He's brought it back down to an argument over the resurrection. That's it. That's all we're talking about here. It's just an argument about the resurrection. This is just an internal dispute over a theological matter. And the fact is that the people in charge, the authorities in charge, the Sanhedrin, even they don't agree on it. And yet they're not being arrested for that. There's nothing wrong with that. They just have an internal dispute over a theological matter and a matter that the Romans couldn't give two hoots about. They've got no concern whatsoever about Judaism. They're just there to stop the Jewish people from going crazy. 
And so Paul's managed to bring all of this down into the into amongst the authorities as being again nothing more than just a dispute over a theological matter. That's all we're talking about here, guys. So now Lysias is absolutely at the end of his tether. He's got no idea what's going on. All he knows is that he's obligated to Paul by virtue of this citizenship, and more than that, by virtue of the fact that Paul is a higher standing citizen than even Lysias is, because remember, Lysias is not even a, a native Roman. He's not a, a native Latin. He's a, he's a Greek imposer. He's Greek and Paul is Jewish, but he's not. neither of them are Roman. The only thing they're having in common is their Roman citizenship, but Paul's actually of higher standing than Lysias. I mean, all of this put, you know, he's just in an absolutely terrible situation here. And he knows that he's not going to be able to get it much further. He's done his very best, but he knows that he can't get a straight, out of, straight answer out of, out of anybody. And, well, he's just going to have to turn it over to the governor. The worst part about this is that he just doesn't know what to say because he, as far as he's concerned, he, Paul's done nothing wrong, uh, at least nothing that he can discern because, you know, there's just all these different stories about him, but nothing, even the people accusing him don't seem to know what's, what, what Paul's done wrong. It's all just a confused mess. So he's got to get him out of there because one thing he's certain of is that if Paul stays in the city, someone's going to kill him. This is not going to end whilst Paul is in the city. So he's got, at the very least, for Paul's sake, get him out of the city. And so that's exactly what he does next. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you've been finding this podcast helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review, which is really going to help to spread it further. And you might also enjoy the YouTube channel and all the other social media attached to the New Testament story. You can find the link for all of these in the show notes. Um, you might also consider supporting the channel financially. You can do this through that same link. Uh, but otherwise, back to the show. All right, so Lysias is at the end of his rope and he's just got to hand this over to the governor. He's done his best, but the governor's going to have to finish this thing off. But he can't just send a prisoner off and just say, hey, here's a guy by the name of Saul or Paul or whatever they call him. Um, you figure it out. Now, he's actually got to give some grounds for sending him in the first place, which is why he wanted to at least figure out what the charges were, but to give the, the governor something to work with um, and really just to demonstrate that this is a serious situation that only the governor can deal with. Now, remembering that the only person in any Roman district that has the power of life and death is the governor. Um, so he, he deals with the most serious matters that the local magistrates can't deal with. And that's what he's trying to do here. He's trying to make this one of those circumstances so that it justifies going and wasting the governor's time. So he's trying to figure that out. So he writes this letter, at least by way of introducing Paul to Felix. So he says, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. He says, this man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Well, that's a lie. <laughs> um, that's not at all what happened. He came down and was ready to flog this Roman citizen. It's only then that he found out that he's a Roman citizen. Now, notice he leaves that little detail out of the the account because, well, that's going to get him in a lot of trouble naturally. And so he's trying to paint himself in absolutely the best light possible. And if the truth gets in the way of a good story, well, then we can just leave that part out. So I learned that he's a Roman citizen. That's why I came down. Well, again, not in the slightest bit true. He says, but I wanted you to know, I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. So notice what he's doing here. He's doing everything he can, one, to cover his own butt, but also to make it clear to the governor that this is a good Roman citizen who's done nothing wrong. It's just these crazy Jews again who just want to, who just want to kill him. Um, and so he says, when I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. And so in response, they send him off to the governor Felix and who is based up in Caesarea. So remember, Jerusalem is not the Roman capital of the region, that's Caesarea. Um, and so he's, he's going to send him up to there in order just to to have the governor deal with it, just to wash his hands at the circumstance and to hopefully um, make sure that Felix is able to, do, able to deal with it himself. 
So Paul gets to Caesarea and it says, the governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when the accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Now, Judea, which is where Paul had just come from, was actually under a broader province of um, Cilicia Pettius, so eastern Cilicia. Cilicia. So it's a sort of a large area, and Judea is kind of a sub-district of that. So uh, Felix is the governor of this sub-district of Judea, but there's actually somebody above him who's sort of the governor of the entire region. So that's his superior. Now, he could actually have sent, now knowing that Paul is from Cilicia, from the larger region, he could have sent him to this higher authority, but that would look incompetent on his part. He wants to be able to show that he can deal with these matters himself. So he's happy to keep him here and wait for his accusers to come uh, to deal with this. And so it says there, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Now, Tertullus would have been a local lawyer, a guy from Caesarea, um, and probably had been involved in cases in front of Felix in the past. I mean, he probably, so Felix would probably be familiar with, um, with who this guy is. Uh, and so this is the Jews now finally coming to have their day in court to try to prosecute Paul. And remembering in their, in their minds, their goal here is to get Paul dead. All right, he is an, he's still the apostate, the, the, the renegade Pharisee who's out there spreading corruption amongst the world of Judaism. I mean, he is public enemy number one to the Orthodox Jewish community. And we've seen this throughout his entire missionary work. Everywhere he goes, the Jewish people are wanting him dead because he's doing exactly what Paul used to kill the Christians for. Um, and so this is their opportunity. This is the governor who can actually do something about it. So this is their, their one opportunity to get this thing done properly, um, which is, again, to make Paul dead. And so here's how the, here's how the trial goes. So it says, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. He says, we've enjoyed a long period of peace under you and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Now, the best thing you can do in these circumstances is to suck up as much as possible. Um, to, to get the, the, the judge on your side, which is exactly what he's doing here. But notice one of the things that he points out. He says, we've enjoyed a long period of peace under you. What Felix was actually known for was for his ability to put down insurrections and violently. Um, that's kind of how he kept things under control. And one of those was the Egyptian that we talked about in the last episode and earlier on in this one. So Felix was the guy who, who dealt with that. And so what they're drawing on is this, this thing that he's famous for. You are good at doing this thing of getting rid of, uh, of uh, insurrectionists. And, well, we want you to do it again because that's exactly what we're dealing with here when we talk about this guy named Paul. So they go on. We have found this man to be a troublemaker. Now, um, the ESV translates this word as a plague. Um, so literally, he's, he's an insurrectionist. Wherever he goes, he just spreads trouble and mischief and insurrection all over the place. It says, stirring up riots amongst the Jews all over the world. Now, what does that have to do with the charges of the situation? Well, nothing. Um, Paul is, um, you know, uh, Paul was just bringing some Jews into the, uh, some Gentiles into the temple. But that's not even what they talk about here. So what they want to um, bring to the attention or, or to make Felix think about this guy is that he's a worldwide insurrectionist terrorist, that wherever he goes, he's just causing all sorts of problems for the Roman Empire, which is exactly what Felix is there to protect. That's his whole job is to keep the peace. And yet here is a guy standing in front of him who wherever he goes amongst the Jewish people, he just what you saw in Jerusalem is just a, a, another day in the life of Paul. He just does this sort of stuff everywhere he goes, starts these sorts of riots. So he says, goes on, he says, he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So he's an insurrectionist, which interestingly enough, you know, that he starts riots wherever he goes. Well, actually, the truth was it was the, Egypt, is the Ephesian Jews that started this riot. And actually, if you look at every single riot Paul was involved in, 
He didn't start any of them. It was actually the people accusing him who always started those riots. But again, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. So first of all, he's a worldwide insurrectionist. He causes riots wherever he goes. But he's also a ringleader of this Nazarene sect. Now, we all know who he's talking about here. Now, the thing about Paul is, of course, that he's a Jew, just like they are. He's a Pharisee, just like they are. That's what he was making clear to them in the Sanhedrin. And so he is as much one of them as they are with him. But they're trying to create a separation here. And they're saying, well, he's part of that fringe sect that actually is nothing to do with us. They're a renegade sect. And if you notice, the leader of their sect, that guy, that Nazarene, that guy by the name of Jesus, what did he get killed for? Oh, that's right, insurrection. So like the, like the master, so is the follower. Paul's an insurrectionist, so was Jesus. Look at the way you guys dealt with Jesus. That was good. Now do the same thing for this guy, Paul. And so it says, even try to desecrate the temple. Well, the Romans don't care about that stuff. That's, that's, that's kind of slightly true as to what might have happened, but that's not the point here. Oh, he tried to desecrate the temple. Uh, yeah, that's, that's our problem. The real problem, focusing what you need to focus in on, is that this guy is a worldwide insurrectionist. And, says, and so we seized him. And so he says, by examining, examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. So this is so, so obvious, so just abundantly clear that the minute you bring him up in front of you and ask him a question, it's going to just spill out. It's going to be so obvious that we don't even need to have this conversation anymore. That's how clear it is how bad this guy is. So he is a worldwide insurrectionist. He is from this troublemaking sect, this Nazarene whose very leader was crucified because he was an insurrectionist. I mean, all of the circumstances are bad. Oh, and by the way, he desecrated the temple. So he he violated our laws. I mean, this guy can't help himself. He is just the worst possible human being. There's, there's only one obvious solution. And the minute that you even see this guy, you're going to know straight away that this is what we need to do. And so then he says, when the governor motioned for him to speak, so bringing Paul up, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years, you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Notice that Paul doesn't get a lawyer here. Paul's a trained orator. He knows how to deal with this stuff, and he, know, he knows his own life better than anyone else. I mean, the whole point here is that it's Paul's testimony that's been charged. Paul knows his testimony better than any lawyer is, and he's, a better, he's going to be just as good as an orator as they are. And so he's the most obvious person to, um, to do this. I mean, Paul, he's, he, yeah, again, he's, he's got the skills. He, he can take care of himself. And so he says, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. That part is true. Absolutely. He says, my accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. So here's Paul again taking control of the situation. When he stood before the Sanhedrin, he completely ignored the fact of what they're charging him with, which is bringing Gentiles into the temple, because that would have unified them against him. And so he just brings it back to a theological debate. But here, they're, they're charging him with worldwide insurrection. And if he tries to argue that case, then that's going to bring suspicion to Felix that maybe this guy is an insurrectionist, then he does need to be killed. And so he completely ignores that and he brings it back to the facts of the case. This is what I'm actually here for. This is what the original thing was about, was that I was some that I started this riot in the city. Let's look at what actually happened. I was there 12 days ago and went up to worship and I did nothing wrong. I was just there minding my own business and these idiots came up and they started a riot and they tried to kill me. I had nothing to do with that. I, I'm the victim here. Those guys are the ones who should be who um, cause, have caused all the trouble. And so he's bringing it back to the actual facts of the case, which is that he's innocent, which he was. He didn't do anything wrong. And as far as Felix is concerned, um, you know, well, interestingly, he thought it was just a theological thing. These guys are bringing up all these issues of worldwide insurrection. And Paul says, well, here's what actually happened. Nothing. I did nothing wrong. But then he goes on. He says, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, and there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear 
before God and man. So they've tried to make him a worldwide insurrectionist. Paul says, no, that's not true. And when I was actually in Jerusalem, I did nothing wrong. But then he says, but I do agree that I am a follower of the way, this thing that they call a sect, this Nazarene sect they're accusing me of. Yeah, they're right on that point. I'm not going to deny that. Uh, And that's part of the problem here. But let me tell you a little bit about it, that I believe everything these guys believe. I live the same kind of life that these guys live. See, they were using it as a way to try to separate Paul from them. He's just one of these renegade Nazarene guys. Paul says, no, I'm actually exactly the same as them. We're all one and the same. He's bringing them back into his orbit and saying, I'm a Jew just like those guys. And so whatever they accuse me of, they need to accuse themselves of because we all have the same beliefs. So he's not only just dismissed the bigger charge of insurrection, he's brought it back to the facts of the case that actually show him to be innocent. And these guys who are trying to um, separate him and have him killed, I'm actually the same as these guys. So be careful what you do to me because you're going to have to do it to those guys as well. And so at the end of all of it, he says, the only thing I'm really guilty of here is that I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I just try to be a good person. I mean, altogether, just a brilliant defense, just absolutely just demolishes what this Tetalus has said. And in the eyes of Felix, it's like, well, what this guy's done nothing wrong, which clearly he hasn't. But then he just sort of piles on. He says, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. So again, Let's bring it back to the actual charges, which is what happened in the temple, which was nothing. I was there to worship ceremonially clean, didn't cause any disturbance. I was there by myself. I did nothing wrong. Oh, and this other thing I was doing, yeah, I was bringing money down for the poor. Um, I didn't realize that was a crime. So look, okay, look, if, if, if bringing money to the poor is a crime, guilty as charged. You, you've got me. All right, that's it. Do with me as you will for this terrible, seditious act of bringing money for the poor. That's all I've done. Nothing apart from bringing money to the poor and just trying to be a good person. So guilty, um, do with me as you need to. But anyway, he goes on. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Well, that's an interesting point. Where are the Jews who actually brought the charges? Nowhere to be seen. The, The people bringing the charges weren't even at the riot. They're, they're only going off secondhand accounts. So they don't even know what was happening. All they're doing is stringing together a story based on hearsay. Where are the actual witnesses to this case? Crickets, right? Nowhere to be seen. It says, all those, these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. So even if you want to go back to the Sanhedrin, back to where all of this began with the charges that they were going to bring against me, it was a theological matter. That's the only thing they have against me. And that's what they discovered when they put me on trial is that we've got a theological disagreement. So I'm a guy who is just trying to do the right thing before God, who's bringing money to the poor, who was on my, on my own in the temple when all of this thing blew up. The guys who charged me aren't even here. And what they do know of me, the only thing that they are witness to is that I said this one thing, which was that I agree with some of them on the resurrection. That's it. That's the whole trial. Well, that trial went nowhere. Um, but Felix didn't know what to do with the circumstances. He, Paul had done, th- done nothing wrong, but he didn't want to annoy the Jewish authorities because they could cause more problems for him in Jerusalem. And so he found this compromise where he's just like, Look, I'm just going to keep Paul here with me and you guys go home and hopefully, hopefully, um, you know, this can all just sort of go away. Maybe we just all forget about this circumstance. And so he keeps Paul in Caesarea for the next two years. Um, so sort of from around 58, sorry, 57 to 59, Paul stays with, um, stays in Caesarea under, effectively under house arrest. And um, what he's hoping for is that Paul's going to give him a bribe, that he could just go, okay, let's just pretend this never happened. Let's just, let's just let me go. Never happens. So he's just stuck there for the next two years. Again, Felix just trying to get Paul out of the circumstances because he just doesn't want to have to, the responsibility of it. 
but that never comes around. Well, eventually, the happy day comes where Felix doesn't have to be the governor anymore. He gets to go home, and there's a new governor in town, a guy by the name of Festus. Now, the first thing that Festus does is that he goes and he does a tour of the district. That's the first thing every governor does. You do a tour of the district, and you go and you go, um, you sit in the trials that have been waiting for the governor to um, to sit on. Um, he, again, he can only, he's the only one that can bring about life or death. And so he is the one, he, he needs to go around and sort of do this sort of court tour. And at the same time, go and meet the local authorities, go and meet all the key people in the cities and basically establish those relationships so that he can work with these people so that, he, you know, he can have a, a relatively peaceful tenure as the governor. So he goes around to do that. And when he gets to Jerusalem, all the authorities have not forgotten about Paul and they say, hey, we want to. We want you to bring Paul down here so that we you can we can he can be tried in Jerusalem, and you know he's kind of like well maybe that could work. But of course, what they want to do is kill Paul along the way. So he goes back and he says, "Hey, Paul, I was just talking to the guys in Jerusalem. They said, would you mind if I brought you down? Um, you know, could we go to Jerusalem and do this?" Now Paul's not stupid. He, he knows exactly what's going to be coming his way if he goes down to Jerusalem, uh, and so he turns around. And he's uh, Felix, sorry, Festus had just said, you know, willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial up there. And Paul says, no. He says, no, I'm standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've done nothing, I've not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Now, one of the other privileges of being a citizen is your right to appeal to the emperor. Um, it used to be the appeal to the people. Um, basically, you can, if you find yourself in, in a circumstance like this, you can make an appeal, a popular appeal to the people. Well, now the people are represented by the emperor, and so now it's become an appeal to, to Caesar. Now, again, what this means is that if you find yourself in these circumstances, you have that right to appeal directly to him. If you think you've got a good enough case, if, you, if your case is not good and you appeal to the emperor and you're found guilty, that's going to work out even worse for you. Um, so you want to make sure that you play this card properly. But this is the other ace up Paul's sleeve, is that if the circumstances go badly, then he can, he can make that appeal. And so this is what he does. Now, the expectation, of course, is that you have to pay your own way to do this. Um, you've got to pay for the transport to, um, to Rome. You've got to bring any witnesses that might be necessary. You've got to pay for your accommodation when you get to Rome. All of that is on you to do that. So if you've got the means to do it, then this is a handy, literally get out of jail free card. Um, it's going to get you out of the circumstance that you might find yourself in your particular province. And so for Paul, this is his last resort. It's either go down to Jerusalem and inevitably be killed or go and appeal to the emperor where he, look, he may still very well be killed, but at the very least, he's got a chance to appeal to the emperor and um, maybe have all of this, these charges dismissed. And at the very least, get himself out of um, the circumstances, get himself out of Caesarea and really just out of the whole region. Remembering too, that Paul still has his sights, sights set on Spain. That, that, that's what all of this has always been about. He, he just wants to get to Spain. He's just been delayed for two years in Caesarea. He needs to get out of Caesarea. He doesn't, he doesn't want to go back there. He doesn't need to go back there. He's got no plans to go back there. He's done with Jerusalem. He's done with this region. He wants to get to Spain. He's nearly 60 years old. Um, you know, he's lived longer than most people do anyway. He knows that the last stage of his missionary work is going to be in Spain or at least in Rome. So that's where he wants to get to. He wanted to get to Rome in the first place. I mean, he's just said to the Romans a couple of years ago, I'm going to be coming to you guys, but the first thing I need to do is go back to Jerusalem. He went back to Jerusalem and look where it got him. So this is his way to get to Rome, which is where he wanted to get to in the first place. And so from there, hopefully be released from these charges so that he could then get to Spain. So this is actually going to work to his favor. Um, one, it might get him out of the charges. It may not, but at least it's going to get him, get him, get him, get him to Rome, which is in a far better circumstance, and he's, he's got a far better chance there than what he does if he goes to Jerusalem. So this is perfect for him. This is what um, this is exactly where he needed to be in the first place, just maybe under different circumstances would have been ideal. And so in kind of a roundabout way, Paul gets um, he, he gets the outcome that he was looking for 
when he first went to Jerusalem. This is he, this is how he'd always sort of planned for things to go in the sense of getting to Rome, just not necessarily under these particular circumstances. So anyway, um, as the story sort of finishes up in Acts, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. Okay, so a couple of things as we finish up here. Uh, So Paul's come to Rome and he's going to make his appeal to the emperor, to the Caesar, who in this case is the emperor Nero. Um, That that's, yeah, that that's the emperor that we're, we're sort of dealing with at this point. Um, But then there's no date set for when that could happen. I mean, that could be any day. Nero could, it's, it's up to him whenever Paul's going to make his appeal. So he's got to find accommodation in Rome and that's what he does. So he's, he's able to live, um, well, he's effectively under house arrest. He has a guard there with him the whole time, but he's living in his own apartment. Now in Rome, what you get are a lot of, um, not high rise buildings, but more apartment blocks. Rome has about a million people crammed into a very tiny little city. And so you've got to build up, you've got to cram them in and you've got to pile them up. And so you might have five or six story high sets of apartment blocks that are built absolutely terribly. I mean, horrible uh, landlords who are building cheap buildings so that they can keep their costs down and, and charge the maximum rent and make the most amount of money. So these things are built absolutely terribly, built out of timber in um, little apartments that are kept warm by open fires in a wooden house. I mean, it's an absolute, it's a recipe for disaster. And so these things build, burn down all the time. And if they don't burn down, well, you still, you've got the issue of not having any running water, uh, not having any sewerage. And so the worst place you want to live in one of these is at the top. You know, we, th- we think about the top story in an apartment today as being the penthouse. I mean, that's where the most, that's the most expensive place to live is. In Rome, that was the worst place you want to live because you're at the very top. It takes, you've got to go all the way down to get your water. You've got to go all the way down to empty your, um, your toilet. And if the place catches on fire, which is almost inevitable, you're the last one out. You're the one that's going to be burnt to death. So these are the cheapest possible apartments you can get. And that's where you have to imagine that Paul is living because that's probably all he's going to be able to afford because he doesn't have a lot of money. Um, He's relying on support at this stage. Support like from the Philippians who've been his supporters this whole time, who've sent him support. And uh, in fact, they sent, while Paul was in prison, they actually sent him support with Epaphroditus. Along the way, Epaphroditus has got sick and then they didn't know what happened to him. And so they've sent another letter to say, hey, Paul, we sent a letter to see if you're okay. We sent some support. And then Epaphroditus hasn't returned. What the heck is going on? And so Paul writes back to them to say, number one, I'm doing okay. Number two, Epaphroditus is doing okay. And number three, thank you so much for the offering. Um, it's been great. Like you've you've continued to support me time and time again, which is our letter to the Philippians. So that's written um, in response to these circumstances that he finds himself in. It's also the place where Paul would have written Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Um, we'll talk about those letters in depth in a, in a future episode, but only one minor little point to make is that when Paul talks about this armor of God, um, what he's describing, of course, is a Roman soldier. You know, the helmet, the breastplate, the sword, the shield, all of those things are standard equipment for a Roman soldier, which is what he had standing right next to him this whole time. He's got one of the uh, Emperor Nero's personal bodyguard, um, one of the Praetorian guard with him at all times, chained to He's, Paul's chained to this guy, so it's an apt analogy. He's got it right there standing next to him as he's writing this letter. And so again, we'll deal with those letters in more depth later on, only to say that this is Paul writing in response uh, to circumstances going on in those places. But nevertheless, this is where Paul finds himself. Any day now, he's going to give an account of his life to the emperor. This is, I mean, for me, I think this is just such an incredible feature of this story. We, we find Jesus in, um, in you know, this little village in, in Nazareth. Um, you find him, you know, crucified three years later, and he's got about 120 followers in Jerusalem. Now, at that point, the whole thing should have just died away. 
But not only does it not die away, it grows and it continues to grow. And within 30 odd years, this message has spread across the Roman world. It's spread all the way up to Rome. And here's Paul, the guy who used to try to kill these Christians, now about to preach this same message to the king of the world. I mean, this is just an absolutely extraordinary development, how quickly this message is spread. And again, going from some obscure little Jewish carpenter who's been crucified to now Paul preaching to the king of the world about this same message. Well, this is how we end the story. Um, This is where Paul finds himself for two years in this Roman imprisonment, and Luke just ends the story. He just cuts it off right there. Now, why did he end the story when he did? Well, he told everything he needed to say. Um, you know, it's he sort of leaves the whole story on a cliffhanger because we just don't know what happened next. Did Paul get to Spain? Well, a lot of early church historians believe that he did, um, that he got to Spain for a while, that he continued his missionary work. He didn't, he either, now Paul was martyred either in 64 or 67. Um, he died under Nero. Nero died in 68. So Paul died before that. So it was either at the end of this imprisonment. Um, sorry, it was either, sorry, um, in 64 under the, um, under the initial persecution of the Christians. So Peter was killed in 64. Probably that's when Paul was was um, killed as well, um, which would suggest that he did get out of prison for a couple of years, probably got to Spain, probably did some other missionary work, or he died in 67. But again, we just don't know what happened next. Uh, Luke just kind of, kind of leaves the story hanging. And we, we just kind of wish, like, why didn't you tell us what happened next? Well, because for Luke's audience, they knew what happened next. They knew how this story ended. Um, they'd heard the story. They like they 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 were familiar with it. Paul's point really was to tell the backstory. Most of Luke's audience would have known about the later story of Paul's life. They knew all of the things that came after that because they were in large part a result of that ministry. But what they wouldn't have known was the earlier story, and that's the story that Luke was trying to tell. Um, and so it's kind of like you know a movie talking about the lead up to World War II where the Nazis invade Poland. Well, you know, here's the story about what, how we got there, and then the movie ends with them invading Poland, and you're like, oh, yes, okay, we, we know what happens next. We, we know how this story continues, so you don't need to tell that. The, the point is just to get you up to that point. So this is probably something of what Luke is doing in this story. Again, we, we don't know, and it's, it's, it's a little, little bit beside the point. The point really being that here's where we find Paul, um, and, well, really, it's where we find... We, we come to the end of his life and ultimately it's where we come to the end of this story. So thank you for hanging in there with me for this last eight weeks or so. Sorry I took a little bit longer today. Um, we just had a little bit of extra bit to get through. Um, hopefully all of this has been helpful um, in just in your better understanding of, of who Paul is and, and how his letters came to be. Um, what we're going to do next week, we're going to start to look go back into the culture of the New Testament. So we're going to look at some of the background issues or some of the background cultural issues that will inform our reading of the New Testament. So uh, join me for that, but otherwise I will see you next week. Mm